Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in this series called Anvil, and uh, Anvil is about toughness. And I'm just going to warn you today, all right? Just kind of get ready because, yeah, it's coming today. It's coming. I'm coming for you. Uh, I want to start this morning with a question. Here's the question. What should people think when they hear the word Christian? You hear that word Christian, what... What should, what should come to mind? Maybe a, a better question, if you're not a Christian, you might be here this morning and, and you're not a Christian. You, you, you're, and your whole thing is, well, I don't, you know, that's not me. Uh, or you're not sure, or you used to be, or you grew up with some, and you went to school with some, and you're like, that's all the reason I know need to not be one. <laughs> or maybe you dated one one time, who knows. But you, you grew up, and, and you're not a Christian, and you, you worked with one, and you said, no, not me, not ever, Right? For whatever the reason, the Christian thing just isn't for you. And, and by the way, you just need to know that we built this for you. We do this for you. If you're not a Christian, we, we really, it's about you before it's about us because we love you. And we, we, all we're trying to do is strip away all the religious stuff so that you can just see Jesus. And hopefully we're successful at that. But, um, you know, the great thing about being here and, being, and not being a Christian and hearing a message like what I'm going to do this morning is that you don't have to do anything. You can just basically hear it at the end and go, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, so if you're not a Christian, here's the question for you. Not sh- what should come to mind when you hear the term Christian, but what does come to mind? You're out somewhere and you hear, oh, you know, he's a Christian. Or you, someone says, hey, my sister's dating a Christian. Or, you know, some people move in next door and they go, oh, they're Christians. What comes to your mind? You walk into the, your, your place of employment and, you know, you, you find out your boss is a Christian. This guy says, hey, my, sis, my, my sister's dating this guy and he, he's a Christian. What, what, not necessarily what should come to mind, but for the non-believer, what does come to mind? Last week we talked about this word as well. This is a word that you don't often hear associated with Christians, and it's the word fearless. Jesus was fearless, and yet, um, you know, that's not always something that gets applied to us. We went back to our roots last week. We looked at some texts about Jesus. What we discovered is he was incredibly, incredibly fearless. And we said uncertainty is unavoidable, and fearful is optional. Fear is going to present itself, right? Like there's all kinds of things in the world that we could be afraid of. It's an option, but it's optional. You don't have to, you can, you know, fear can pop up and you can feel that emotion, but to live in fear, to be fearful, that's a different thing. To be afraid for a moment and go, oh, but then to kind of gather your wits about you and go, I'm not, I'm not going to be afraid of that. Fearful is an option. It's one of the things we said last week. And, and because our Savior was absolutely fearless, he was not afraid of anything. And, and, and now when you go back and you look at first century Christians, um, they don't seem to have feared anything. They didn't fear illness. They didn't fear death. They didn't fear loss. In fact, it should be said of us that we fear loss so little that we have become some of the most selfless people on the planet. See, when you don't fear loss, what that does is it pushes you into a place of great compassion. When you don't fear loss, you're freed up to be compassionate. You're freed up to be generous. You're freed up to give to other people. But when you fear loss, you won't do that. And so it should be said of us that we are absolutely fearless. And in our fearlessness, that we are extraordinarily generous and we are extraordinarily compassionate. The other word that we talked about briefly this, this last week was the word confident. 
And when people find out you're a Christian, one of the things that they should think is, man, they're, they're, you know, that's, that's going to be one of the most confident, um, fearless people around. And when I use the word confident, I don't mean that in terms of arrogant, okay? That doesn't do anybody any favors, and it certainly doesn't shine well on Jesus. So I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm talking about this humble confidence where you are sure about the things that really matter in life. And apparently there was something so positive about the early Christians that when they showed up, it was like, oh my goodness. I mean, the Christians are here. It was a good thing. You want, they, they wanted them, you know, there were a lot of people that felt really good when the Christians showed up because they were so fearless and they were so selfless and they lived their life with, with this awe-inspiring thing. And now the term Christian simply means Christ follower or Christ one, which meant that if we are Christians, um, we should look like Jesus. And here's what I can tell you. Jesus looked nothing like this. I see that, and what I see is weak and fragile and, and dainty. And that's just not the way Jesus was. One of the things we discovered last week is that Jesus was not fragile. Christianity is not fragile. And his followers should not be fragile. What, what, it leads me to this question. What in the world is wrong with us? Maybe uh, a better question is this. What went wrong with us? Because Christians haven't always been that way. We, we have become somewhat fragile, and we have become somewhat fearful, and we have become something that is, not, you know, our brand of Christianity anymore is not something that inspires awe in those who watch. It used to, and something happened. And so the question is, what went wrong with us, because in the first century, uh, in Christianity, Christians were irresistible. The, the only way Christianity survived in the first century was that, you know, it, I mean, it, it outlasted Rome, it outlasted the temple, um, because there was something so uniquely attractive about Christians, because Christians were, were like Jesus. And here's what I can tell you about Jesus. People who didn't even know Jesus and were nothing like Jesus flocked to Jesus. They seemed to love him. And Jesus loved them even though they were nothing like him. And Christians were the same way. They loved these people that were nothing like them because Jesus loved them and was nothing like them. And so the first century Christians were irresistible and they were fearless and, and there was just, there was, but there was so much to fear. If you were a Christian in the first century, there was gobs and gobs of stuff to fear. So what happened to us? Why is it that today when we hear the term Christian, we think a lot of bad things? Somehow we have lost a stellar reputation over time. Christian used to have a, a reputation that was a really good reputation and not so much anymore. Why is it that the Christians, when there is an election cycle or when the economy looks like it might nosedive or take a turn, we freak out? Jesus must look at us and go, really? You live in the United States of America. What do you have to be afraid of? You're worried about who, might, who the president might be? You're worried about an economy? Have you forgotten whom you follow? Have you forgotten that I came to Jerusalem in broad daylight? I marched right down Main Street knowing that I was going to be arrested, knowing they were going to hook me up to a, a post and beat and whip the flesh off my body, knowing that on Friday I would end up on a cross. And you're afraid of what? You live where? 
To be honest, it's kind of embarrassing. And if it isn't embarrassing enough, wait till you hear the verses <laughs> that I'm about to read to you this morning. Today, I want to take you to an extraordinary passage of Scripture. Uh, this passage is very rich, it's gritty. It's down to earth, and there is a ton of emotion in it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, we don't know who wrote this, right? Um, not sure whether a man wrote it or a woman wrote it. Um, this is, is, a, is written to what they call the dispersia, which was a, the Jews who had gone through persecution, and when the persecution started, they scattered. They went all over the place to, to escape persecution, and so... You know, they used to be in this tightly uh, concentrated area and then just, you know, just like putting pepper in, in water or something, just like everywhere. And so this letter was not written to a specific group in a specific place. This letter was written and designed to be spread broadband as much as you could do that in the first century. And so um, we don't know who wrote it. And there's a little bit of conjecture when I was in Bible college I had one professor that suggested to me that whoever wrote this, I mean, this is a fantastic little letter. It's very rich. But the suggestion was that whoever wrote it maybe didn't sign it because if, if they didn't sign it, they thought that if it was signed that it wouldn't, they would, you know, the person wasn't known very well and they wouldn't take it seriously. And some people have even thought that it could have been a woman because, and she didn't sign it because she knew if, if a woman had signed it, Back in the first century, they, wouldn't, they would have discounted it. They wouldn't have given it the weight that it needed. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I, I kind of doubt that's true, but it's, it's interesting to think that. It's interesting that that's a possibility. So today, as I talk about this, I'm going to refer to the author as he, but the truth is we don't know who wrote this. And so the Hebrews have, have primarily, the, the Jewish Christians, they are beginning to wonder. They've gone through persecution, and they're starting to wonder to themselves, is it worth it? And is it working? Is it worth it and is it working? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when there's so much at stake and I've lost my job and my kids are getting mistreated now because we're Christians and, and it's really tough to follow Jesus? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And on top of that, is it working? Are we making any difference at all? Is it worth it? Is it working? Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you should find this fascinating. 2,000 years ago, nobody knew what was going to happen to this small group of people who called themselves Christians. There was no way of knowing that there would be so many Christians in the world when you got to the 21st century. No way of knowing that. They, can't, they couldn't have imagined a city like ours where there are churches on seemingly every corner. You know, we've had weddings in here. We've had funerals in here. They couldn't conceive of a building that was erected for the movement of Jesus where things like that could happen freely with no um, you know, fear of... of persecution or harm in any way and there was just was no guarantee they could not have imagined what we have they, they couldn't imagine that you would be able to show up as freely as you do and worship the way you have there was just these gatherings of people who believed that Jesus was the savior and the son of God and that he had actually risen from the dead because they had either met someone who had met someone who saw Jesus or they'd heard somebody teach who said, you know, I was there, I saw, I, I heard Jesus. Um, the letter of Hebrews was written somewhere 40, 50, 60, 70 years after the time of Jesus. Not exactly sure, but it, close enough that there would still have been people alive that would have been able to say, I saw him or I heard him teach after the resurrection. I was there, I saw it. 
And so they had no idea that this is going to, you know, is it going to go anywhere? Is it going to spread beyond our little town? Are we just kidding ourselves? Are we lying to our children when we tell them about Jesus? Are we throwing our lives away for virtually nothing? Is it worth it? Is it working? And the author of Hebrews writes to this first century audience and he says, oh my my goodness, yes, it's worth it. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin with a verse that is probably very familiar to you. No doubt you have read this many times. More More than likely you have heard this preached And when you heard it preached, there's a good chance that at some point you've heard this lifted out of context. Here's the verse. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, that is the the biblical definition of faith. In fact, that is the definition of faith in general, right? It doesn't even have to be a biblical definition. That's just, that's what faith is. But let me put it to you this way. If you hold a job right now, or if you've ever held a job, you understand faith. Because here's what happened. You had an interview, you went in, and someone sat across the table from you, and you had a negotiation. And you said, how much are you paying, and what's the job? And they explained it to you. This is the hours that we're going to require for you to work, and at the end of this set amount of time, we're going to give you this many dollars for that much of your hours. You perform this job, you do this task for this many hours, we're going to pay you that. And somewhere in your mind, you said, I'll do that. And you, you signed up and you, you decided to work for that particular person or that particular company. And so you went and you traded your hours even though, the, and I mean, any job I've ever had, they didn't pay me on the front end. They always pay you at the end, right? And you worked your hours and then they came and they gave you a paycheck. That's all faith is. It's believing that when someone says that they're going to do something, that they're actually going to do it. And you go, okay, I'm, I, I'll, I'll have faith in that. Faith is confidence that somebody is going to keep their promise. Now, the part of this passage that nobody ever talks about that we're going to dive deep into here is is as follows. Here's how this ends. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then the author is going to go way back into the Old Testament, and he's going to start talking about all these Old Testament heroes of ours, these people that, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school as a little kid and they had flannel graph, these are probably the people that you saw enacted on the flannel graph. People like Moses and Moses' mama and Abraham and Isaac, and he says, look, these people were commended not because they came up with something and talked God into it, and that's how we got here. No, they were commended because God made them a promise And they lived as if God was going to keep that promise. Faith is simply believing that God is going to do what he promised he would do. That's all faith is. And living by faith and walking by faith is simply living your your life every single day as if you believe God. That's what faith is. And then the author launches into this powerful passage. Hebrews, I'm going to look at verse 13 here. All these people, in other words, all these people that we grew up hearing about, these Old Testament people, all these people were still living by faith when they died. What does that mean? It means they never got the paycheck. They never saw the promise of God that was made to them. God said he was going to keep a promise, but they died before the promise came through. And he goes on to say, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. This is referring to something that God had said to Abraham. God looked at Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless an entire nation through you. It's going to happen through you. Now you got to understand when, when God says this to Abraham, Abraham doesn't even have any kids. Through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. And Abraham's thinking, well, how in the world is that going to happen? 
And Abraham never saw that fulfilled. Isaac never saw it. Jacob didn't see it. Moses didn't see it. Generation after generation came and went. They never saw that promise fulfilled. And yet there was always this core, this remnant, this group of people who were absolutely faithful to God because they believed that God was going to come through eventually. Now this is so convicting to us and quite frankly embarrassing because we pray on Monday and if God hadn't answered our prayer by Thursday, we're ticked off, right? God, I prayed this on Monday, and I've been waiting on you for four days now. Now, what's going on? Now, come on. And, and, and if you don't, okay, so I'm going to give you an extension, because I know you're running the world and everything, and I know that's got to be hard, so I'm going to give you one more day, and if you don't, then I'm going to really, I'm going to get all upset. And God didn't answer your prayer, and, and, and he didn't ask, you know, this person didn't ask you out, or this, you, you, this uh, you know, person was sick, and you prayed for them, and, and they didn't get better. In fact, maybe they got worse. And how can I believe in a God who is so untrustworthy? And this group of people in Hebrews would say, what? I mean, we lived our entire life trusting God, and we never saw God come through. We never saw the promise that he made to us, but we trusted him anyway. And then the author doubles down, verse 36, some faced jeers. Now I'm going to read these phrases, and like I said last week, don't lose sight of what's going on here. The word that, that gets, the words that get used here are heavy, heavy words. Some faced jeers and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment, they were put to death by stoning. What does it feel like to be stoned, right? What does it feel like to be taken out of the city and have people surround you with rocks in their hand and they're going to throw rocks at you until you die? What, I mean, what would that be like? They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. He's not done. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then he pauses and it's as if he pushes back from the table and he puts his pen down and he starts to think a little bit. And, and as he's thinking, it's almost like the emotion of all these stories come flooding back into his mind and, and the story of Moses and the story of, of Abraham. And he thinks about all these amazing people in the Old Testament that he's writing about. And, and, he, and then he comes, you know, all the way up to the first century. And now this person that's writing this is on the other side of the resurrection. Understand, it's not a promise anymore. It happened. Did you guys see that? It might just be me. I'm sorry. Something's flying around up here and it's freaking me out. <clears throat> Where was I? Resurrection happened. Yeah, resurrection happened. This guy is on the backside of the resurrection. Understand that these Old Testament people, they didn't have that benefit, right? They didn't realize that God came through with the resurrection. Now it's happened. Now this guy's writing, and he's able to look back on the resurrection, and he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness. What if they'd given up? What if they had, had given up on the promise of God and just said, you know what, it's not worth it? And he's just sitting there, and I think that the, he's thinking about this in the first century, and he's going to himself, wow. I'm so glad they didn't give up. And then he writes one of the most powerful statements of the entire New Testament, verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. Now listen to me. There once was a version of faithfulness to God that elicited heroic 
living. There once was a version of faithfulness to God. Once upon a time, people lived in such a way that it caused others to stand back and go, man, would you look at those people? I mean, I don't know that I believe everything they believe. And I don't know that I understand everything the way they understand it, but that has got to be some of the most fearless, awe-inspiring people I've ever seen in my life. I mean, just look at them. Look at the way they live. There once was a version of faithfulness to God that was so impressive that others could not take their eyes off of this group of people called the Christians. They may not have bought into everything, but boy, did they admire them. They didn't understand what was going on when they came together to meet on the weekends, but man, I wish my life had that much fearlessness in it. I wish I had that kind of courage and devotion and dedication to something that I believe in the way they do. They were the most awe-inspiring group of people that they had ever seen in the first century. And over time, that group of people grew and grew. And it contained rich people and poor people. And it contained masters and slaves. And it contained men and women and children. And it contained um, Jews and Gentiles. There was every reason in the world why this thing would shear apart and they wouldn't get along, they wouldn't find common ground, but that's not what happened. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And we are here today. Once upon a time, there was a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. And people would ask the question, who are these people? He goes on, verse 39, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And now pay attention because this is where you and I come in. None of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us. See, now it's going to include us. The, the early Christians didn't see the promise, and the reason they didn't see it is because God had something bigger in mind, and that bigger something was including us. It was waiting on us to show up, waiting on us to be a part of it. And here we are halfway around the world from where this took place, centuries away from the time that this was written, and we are celebrating a Jewish carpenter, and we're worshiping him this morning. And he says, God is up to something so big and so majestic and so international that people could not comprehend what God was up to, but they remained faithful. And then he says, so, the only, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And when you see that word perfect, it, it just simply means that, that this was the completion to God's plan. That the plan all came together. You could summarize it this way. They were looking forward and they were faithful. They looked forward to what God was going to do and they were faithful even though they never got to see the promise take place. They never got the promise delivered to them. We, on the other hand, have the benefit of looking back at the resurrection and we're fearful we can see where God came through. We can see where God kept the promise. We can see where God said, I'm going to do this thing, and he actually did what he said he was going to do. And somehow, we live our life in fear. God promised Abraham, and he fulfilled it in Christ. Abraham never saw it. Jesus was raised from the dead. The church was launched. It survived. It thrived. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there is so much evidence for us. Listen, if you are not a Christian today... Here's my challenge to you. 
Do the homework. Don't just get lazy and say, well, I don't believe. No, there is all kinds of evidence for what we believe. If you're here today and you're a Christian, this is what I want you to understand. There is solid evidence for your faith in Jesus. You do not have to check your brain at the door. We are not some mindless scum that walk around brainwashed. Do the homework. Look at the evidence, and when you look at the evidence, it is compelling that there was a man named Jesus who was crucified, who was raised from the dead, and there's all kinds of evidence for that. We should be the most fearful, fearless people on the planet. We should be the most humble people on the planet. We should be the people who are the hardest to offend. We're so fragile. We should be fearless, not because of what God's promised, but because of what God has done. We're able to look back and we're able to see it in history and say, that's where God showed up. I know it for a fact. I'm not just guessing. I'm not just hoping. I'm not just hoping one day this all happens. And now he says to this first century audience, let me tell you what to do in light of all this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about all these people in the Old Testament that we've heard of. Right, like Moses and, and, and Isaac and Abraham and Jacob and all those kind of people. And, but, but for us, the cloud of witnesses is much bigger than just the Old Testament people. Now it's the New Testament people. It's people like Paul who risked his life time and time again to see to it that the message of Jesus went out. It's people like Peter who died at the hands of Nero. We are told that Peter was crucified upside down. I'm talking about people like Matthew. People like John. And then you come to the first and second and third century Christians who were some of the most fearless people in the world. They threw them to lions. They did horrible things to those first and second century Christians when they persecuted them. Then you come up into the 15th century and the 16th century and you encounter names like Martin Luther and a guy like we talked about last week, William Tyndale, who basically is responsible for you having a Bible in English. And he, you have that because he was willing to give his life. They strangled him in the public square and burned his body. And they remained faithful to God. And they are a part of this great cloud of witnesses that watches us and roots for us. And, and, and they're the ones that would look at us and say, God can be trusted. Is it worth it? And is it working? Yes. And to us, he says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, well, what should we do? He says, let us hide, let us whine, complain, hoard our resources just in case, put our Bibles in a drawer, build bomb shelters, purchase guns and ammunition, blame the cops, blame the president, blame teachers, blame mama, demand our rights, build a wall, tax the rich, play it safe, find somebody to sue. Take our country back and pray that Jesus returns so that we do not have to suffer. Did I miss anybody? I get y'all. That gets me. I've said some of those. I've thought that some of those were the answer. Can you imagine how we sound to the great cloud of witnesses? They would say, you're worried about what? You're afraid of who? Forget the great cloud of witnesses. Can you imagine what we sound like to the Christians in China today? Or the Christians in Syria? Or the Christians in Pakistan? 
the Christians in Iraq, Christians who, who are crowded into some refugee camp somewhere and they don't know where their daughter is tonight. And they're going to kneel by their little cot, which is all they have, and they're going to pray a faithful prayer, and all they are is completely faithful, and they continue to be faithful, and they continue to be faithful, even though they have nothing. How embarrassing would it be for them to hear our prayers? Dear Lord, please help me find my keys and give me a safe trip and be with me. Amen. I think they would say, really? That's it? That's all your praying has come to? That's all you're worried about? That's the crux of Christianity for you? Do you realize the price that the people who came before you paid so that you could have this? And that's what your faith has been reduced to? Please tell me there's more. So the writer of Hebrews is talking to first century audience and he's asking, they're asking the question, is it worth it and is it working? And he says, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's working. So here's what he says to us. When we're overwhelmed by anxiety, when it looks like the world is coming apart at the seams, when it looks like Christianity is in decline, when, when it looks like nobody's paying attention anymore, when we don't date like Christians and we don't live like Christians, this is what he says to us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Instead of being critical, instead of being offended, instead of blaming somebody else, instead of being anxious or, or nervous, you need to look in the mirror and you need to ask yourself, what is holding me back? Why am I not all in? You see, the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And the more uncertain things are, the more certainty and faith shine through. And here's the question that he's asking us. What are you afraid of, really? What are you really worried about? What do you need to throw off? What do you need to leave behind? What's hindering you? from embracing the message of Jesus and moving into it fearlessly as a follower of Jesus who is able to look back and see that God wasn't just making a promise, God fulfilled the promise in the resurrection. We can see that God kept his promise because we're on the other side of it. Whom shall we fear? What should we fear? Nothing. And then he doubles down again and he says, let us run with perseverance. I love that. Like bulldog. Don't back down. Don't give up. You... You press into it. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Our generation, this generation of Christians, we have something very specific to do in our culture, okay? God has something that's specific that he wants us to do. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. For our generation, for the Christians living in America, we have a very specific role to play and a very specific difference to make in our culture. The question is, are we up for it? That's really the question. Or will we just join, get on the complaint bandwagon? Will we complain and blame others and, and you know, if only this, and, and uh, why can't it be, and woe is me, and God didn't answer my prayer by Friday, so I'm not sure I even believe in him anymore. The challenge is this. Will we embrace every challenge to our faith And will we join with people who came before us, who had it hard, who pressed through, who didn't give up, who were fearless, 
And then he says, now in the meantime, while you do that, here's the key. Here's the thing that you cannot forget. While you're looking for a way to make a difference and while you're trying to live fearlessly and confidently, fixing our eyes on, and if you grew up in church, you know what comes next, right? You know what the next line is. Fixing our eyes on, here's the problem, because our eyes are on all the wrong things. Our eyes are on security. Our eyes are on safety. Our eyes are on an economy. Our eyes are on political stuff. And as long as our eyes are fixed on that kind of stuff, we will not run the race with endurance, and we will run scared, and we will miss our opportunity to be light into a culture that is desperately looking for somebody to give them some light. What are your eyes fixed on? All the stuff that the culture says that it should be, or is it fixed on security and safety and wealth? And as long as that's what you're doing, you will never fulfill your purpose. You will never fulfill the destiny that God has for you as long as your eyes are fixed anywhere other than on Jesus. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. That with all the news and everything that happens, and we're constantly asking, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus say it? How would Jesus react? You, you, your fearless Savior faced down power. They didn't have to go hunt Jesus down to arrest him. Understand that. It wasn't like Jesus was running away from the city, looking over his shoulder, hoping nobody caught him before he could get on a boat to get away from what was coming. He marched himself right down the middle of Main Street in Jerusalem, and he said, here I am knowing that they were going to crucify him, knowing they were going to pin him up to a post and rip the flesh off his body. And then he looks at you and me and he says, follow me. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus react? Just imagine if just for one day, for 24 hours, just imagine if we could get everybody who calls themselves a Christian for 24 hours to live their life asking the question and doing, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus react? If we just for 24 hours would live that out, how different would our world be? Listen, that changed the world once. And there are enough of us worldwide that if we really took this seriously, it could change the world again. Now, you hear me up on a stage, and I know preachers like me say stuff like that all the time. We're like, yeah, there he goes. That makes for a great sermon. Whoo, that's a good sermon. Good sermon. Whew. That's powerful. It's powerful. But we don't really believe it. The only way we change the world is if we're not afraid. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, it's as if the author of Hebrews is not done rubbing our noses in it. He's really going to do it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, here's the problem. The problem with the cross wasn't just the pain. The problem with the cross was the shame that came with it. No doubt, Jesus had smelled a crucifixion long before he ever saw one. 
Because that's what happened. They, they, they crucified these guys out in public where everybody could see it. It was used as a tool to keep you from doing anything against Rome. And so Jesus, as a little boy, no doubt, has walked past people being crucified with his mother and father. And he was able to see it. But he probably smelled it before he saw it because they left them up there for days. And they did it to make an example. Jesus knew what it was to walk past a person being crucified and he had heard their screams and he had heard their moans and their agony. And he says, follow me. What in the world are you worried about and what are you scared of? Scorning at shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you think he's going to put a period right there, but he goes on. Consider him. Fix your eyes, focus on him who endured such opposition from sinners so that, why should you consider him? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not conclude it's not worth it and it's not working. Now I'm pretty much done. You're like, thank God, when's this thing going to be over? I mean, I talked to my mama this week. She said, Brett, what are you talking about this week? I said, mama, it's a butt whooping. It is just a butt whooping. Let me just talk to a couple of groups before we quit, okay? First of all, I want to talk to those of you who are 45 and older. 45 and older, are you with me? Many of you have grown weary and have lost heart. You have given up. And the reason is that you have fixed your eyes on a political system. The reason is you have fixed your eyes on something other than Jesus. A political system, a leader, the good old days... This guy's going to save us. This senator's going to save us. This president, this man, this woman is going to save us and lead us to a better place. That's what my eyes are fixed on. And if that doesn't happen, we're in big trouble. You need to knock it off. And here's why. You are scaring the children. Okay? There's a generation that is coming up behind us that is watching us and how we live. And they're taking their cues from us. And we're scaring them. They're watching us live and they're like, oh my goodness. If we don't elect the right person, it's going to be the end of the world. If we don't fix the economy, if we don't have religious freedom, if we don't get the right laws passed, it's not going to be a world worth living in. Now listen to me. Those things are important, okay? I'm not suggesting that an election isn't important. It's very important. It's important to me. Policies are important to me. But none of them matter as much as this one word, faith. Faith, believing that God is who he said he is and that he will do what he said he would do. We know this from the Old Testament. We know this from the New Testament. Pilate looked at Jesus and said this. He said, what is truth? Crucify him. And then he went on about things as if he had done all he needed to do and he was in full charge. Like he was somebody and here's what I would tell you. The only reason you know Pilate's name is because he's a footnote in the life of Jesus Christ. It's the only reason you even know who Pilate is. Because in the grand scheme of things, Pilate was a nobody. At the time, he thought he was much greater than Jesus. And the only reason you know his name is because the Jewish carpenter was the son of God and Pilate had some way to intersect his life. And that's the only reason you know his name. We have nothing to fear. So all of you over 45, knock it off. You need to model for the next generation 
that God is in control and that God can be trusted. Okay, that's our job. That's our job. Those of us 45 and older. Now, get involved in politics, get involved in culture, you know, um, get involved in society, but never fix your eyes there. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, let me talk to those of you who are 45 and under, especially those of you between the ages of 20 and 30. Do not grow weary and lose heart. Do not grow weary and lose heart. Don't fix your eyes on social media. Don't fix your eyes on Washington, D.C. Definitely don't fix your eyes on this generation, my generation. Do not grow weary and lose heart because once upon a time, a group of people your age embraced a resurrected Savior and people your age changed the world. Your age changed the world. And they did it through faith. They did it by not being afraid. They did it by keeping their eye on the prize. And when the writer of Hebrews finishes this up, and what we're going to look at and finish it up, verse 4, he takes the kill shot. Look at this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. He says, really? Not one of you has shed a drop of your own blood yet. What are you, what are you afraid of? And you're concerned? Really? Come on, step up, step in, because you have been invited to follow the promise-keeping God. And you are on the other side of the promises. You know that there was a resurrection. You know that God came through. It's not wishing for you. It's not, well, one day, you know, God's going to keep his promise. No, we know that he did. We have the evidence for it. We can look back in history and see it. You have every reason to live in the world fearless like Jesus. And he looks at you and he looks at me with that little smile on his face and he gives you one of these and he's like, follow me. Don't be afraid. Come on. You want an adventure? You want something bigger than you? You want to throw your life into something that you'll never forget? Follow me. But if you live your life fearless, you're going to waste it. Imagine a generation of Christians, and imagine if that generation was us, that it could be said about us, the world was not worthy of them. Doesn't matter who the president is. Doesn't matter what happens to the economy. Doesn't matter about any of the stuff that's going on in the world right now. It's important, yes, I get that, but in the grand scheme of things, for us, it doesn't matter. What are we afraid of? We have an opportunity to run the race set out before us, and it begins when we stop being so daggone ridiculously afraid. What are we afraid of? We have a Savior who modeled for us fearlessness. Let's do that. Imagine a generation of Christians that when people thought Christian, they thought to themselves, man, I'm glad they're here. And I just found out my sister's dating a Christian and I couldn't be happier. He's so good to her. I just found out my boss is a Christian and this guy treats me with respect. He's fair. He's hard when he needs to be hard, but he's, he's kind. I just found out that the people that move next to me are Christians. I couldn't ask for better neighbors. Greatest people I've ever been around. I don't know if I believe everything they believe, but man, it's hard, to, it's hard to argue with what they are showing me. Let's be that. Let's be that. We have every reason to try. And no excuse not to. I just want to talk to you if you're here and you're not a Christian. I just want to say this one thing to you, Okay. What everybody wants in the world, whether they realize it or not, 
is they want to belong to something that's bigger than them. They want something that can inspire them. And I realize that many times what's been presented to you when it comes to Jesus is not inspiring. But I am calling you to something that could one day cost you your life. I'm calling you to something that would be radically transformational to your life. And I'm calling you to something that is way bigger than you. A movement like you can't even believe. And I'm calling you to follow somebody who marched himself right into Jerusalem and said, you go right ahead and crucify me. I am not afraid of you. That's who I follow. And I call you to join me in that. Let's pray together. Father, this has not been a fun sermon to preach. It's not fun to hear, but it's needed because we are just living our life like, like we don't have any faith at all. And our eyes are on every possible thing, it seems, except Jesus. And so God, I, even right now, this morning, there's still some conjecture as to who the next president is going to be. And there's all kinds of stuff in the news, and this one said that, and this one said this. And I don't know who's right or who's wrong. I don't know who eventually is going to be the president. It doesn't matter to us. You're our Savior, and you're our King. And we're going to step into the coming days fearless. We want to be like you. I pray for these people, Lord, that they would find the kind of fearlessness it takes to live in the kind of world that awaits us out there. We need your help. We need your strength. Inspire us. Empower us. Help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.